So last week we were in the Word and we were looking at how do we focus our hearts and our attention on the resurrection in such a way in these weeks leading up to it that next week when we are in the midst of it, we've prepared ourselves well. And so today we want to do that again. We are going to be looking today at sacrifice. And it's interesting, if you'll notice when we're talking about these grand themes of the Bible, where do we find ourselves starting last week and this week? It's in the book of Genesis. So when we talk about like the importance of Genesis, that it's just not this old book, this book, Genesis, is the foundation for everything we're learning and we're wrestling with later in the Bible. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, what we see here, if you were to just look at the headings in your Bible, you're going to see that it is the closing, kind of the wrap-up of the creation story. And the very end of the book, it's that God has created a wife for Adam. He's instituted marriage. And the very last verse is this statement here. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're not ashamed. You notice that? Isn't that kind of a, an interesting statement? That there was no shame. There's no guilt there. Well, in between that verse and the next verse we're going to, the Satan has entered into the picture, and he has begun to disrupt that situation. Because prior to that, I mean, right now what we see here is that God has created man and woman and placed them in the garden. And at this very moment, everything, all of creation is in sync with itself. It is perfect harmony in all of creation, but also between man and woman, but then more importantly, between man and God. Perfect harmony. Nothing is in the way. Nothing has disrupted that. But then chapter 3 interrupts that harmony with the temptation of Eve by Satan and the sin that resulted from that. And with that sin came, as we talked about last week, separation. With that sin came, all of a sudden, this woman and this man who were in perfect harmony now were, not, were no longer in harmony. Now they were dysfunctional. Now she was going, uh, he did it, and she's going, and he's saying, it's the woman that you gave me, and now there's blame shifting. Now all of a sudden, there's guilt entered into the relationship. And that separation had also separated them from God. And, that's, and when we talk about that, let's just restate that really quickly. Sin separates people from other people, but it also separates them from God. And that separation from God means results in death and judgment and punishment. Now, so someone, if, you're, if you missed last week's sermon, let me just really restate it really quickly. When we say you're separated from God, you're going to go, I didn't know I was ever connected. But this is the thing. Like, apart from belief and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, all of us are disconnected from God. All of us are separated from God. And that separation results in eternal separation from God. Unless in this life, unless in these moments that you have, these few breaths you take in this life, unless you breathe one and you say, I need Jesus' payment for sin as my own payment for sin. And you state that, and you make that that decision to trust in him. That takes away the separation. That brings in unification. That redeems you. That reconciles you back to the Lord Jesus, back to God. But in chapter 3, go ahead and flip in chapter 3 to verse 21. We have just had 
the sin of Adam and Eve. We've just had the judgment been dispensed upon um, Adam and Eve and on Satan. And it closes this, this whole story with this. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You have to remember that earlier in this story, they said, they said we hid ourselves because we knew we were unclothed. And he's like going, who told you that? In other words, he's like going, why do you feel guilty about that? What's changed? He knows. He knows what's changed. Their sin had changed. And all of a sudden, they'd gone from being totally transparent with him, and in every sense of the word, to being all of a sudden hiding themselves from him. And then he says, you're right. You do have shame. You do have guilt. You do need covering. And in that act right there, that seemingly small statement, that seemingly small act of just clothing them, which in many ways we would see that as being fairly just functional, right? It's, more and more, it's much, much more than that. Because in that small statement, Jesus, or God, begins to put in place a biblical truth that is the center point or is foundational to all of our biblical understanding. And that is the sacrificial system. The, the sense of having to shed blood to cover for sin. So an animal shed blood, gave up its life, its skin was taken, and then covered mankind, its shame, his shame and his guilt. First time it had ever happened. But it set in motion that same act that would happen for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But not only that, that same kind of act, that same thing of, of shedding of blood to atone for sin is found across humanity. Most ancient religions practiced animal sacrifice. Many of them still do. Islam still does. Um, many of them do. Buddhism and Taoism is one of the few that does not have animal sacrifice, but it does have other sacrifices. But animal sacrifice still is practiced to this day, and it began here. The next time we see sacrifice is just a few chapters later. You won't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of walk us through a little bit of scripture here. The next time we see sacrifice was when Noah leaves the ark. He builds an altar and he offers a burnt offering to God. And there are many prominent stories throughout Scripture that all focus in some sort of way or another about sacrifice. You see it with Abraham sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. You see it in Exodus 12 with the, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the, of the, of the Jews in Israel. The Passover lamb there in Exodus 12. You, you see it, the, you know, one of the, the passages that many of us know are familiar with was that great, great saying when the prophet arrives in the battle scene and he goes, and, and Saul says, I've done everything you said. And he goes, then what is that bleeding of sheep I hear in my head? In other words, it, you see sacrifices being in that story is Paul's, Saul's partial sacrifice in 1 Samuel 15, 9. One of my favorite, favorite stories about David is the, the sacrifice on the threshing floor in 2 Samuel 24, where he says, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. In other words, he goes, sacrifice is not sacrifice if it doesn't cost me something. And then also another famous one that is a great, great children's story, you know, that we teach our children. It's very dramatic is Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal 
in 1 Kings 18. But it's in the book of Leviticus, in this Old Testament book that everyone else kind of skips. You know, you go from, oh, wait, Exodus, okay, let's skip all the way over to 1 Kings or something like that. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, tough books to kind of get through. Leviticus gives us the foundation for understanding what's happening next Sunday, Friday night and Sunday. The book of Leviticus, it is in detail, it, it, it explains the sacrificial system for the nation of Israel. And these sacrifices were given to make their relationship with God right. The idea behind the animal sacrifice is that the animal dies in the place of man. Because, you know, when sin entered in, death entered in, Paul wrote. And so when sin entered in, it demanded death. And so God put in system that there is a symbolic, substitutional way that we're going to do this to try and appease God or to appease God. So an animal will die in your place. And so in Leviticus, he begins this system where, he, where an animal dies in the place of man for that sin. And then on the Day of Atonement, for instance, he instructed the Levite priest to take two goats. One was sacrificed for the sins of the people, and the other one was sent into the wilderness to remove the sins of Israel. That's where you get the term scapegoat. The, the priest would pray over the, the head of the goat and place the sins of the people on the goat and then send them off into the wilderness. And the sins of the people were taken away. Both of those things are symbolic and substitutionary for the actual sins. Of, or for the, for instead of man suffering that way, an animal did in their place. Perhaps the best example of a sacrifice that points toward the perfect sacrifice to come was Passover, one that many of us are very familiar with. The blood of a perfect spotless lamb without blemish was sacrificed. It was, it was slain, and its blood was gathered. And with a hyssop branch, the blood was put over the, door, the, the threshold of every Jewish family that was living in the nation of Egypt. And what that did was it meant that the angel of death passed over that home and it was, it was protected from the penalty. It was protected from death. Death did not enter there. And the angel of death went on. And of, and, and of all of the many, many blood sacrifices seen throughout the Old Testament, they were all foreshadowing the true sacrifice that was to come. So the Israelites would never forget that. Without blood, there is no forgiveness. And a matter of fact, in Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Did you see? The blood makes atonement for life. Life is in the blood. And if, he is, and if death has entered in, blood must be shed. And he says, so then the, the blood of that animal can serve as your payment. It'll, it'll atone me, my, my justice that I demand of you. The blood makes atonement at the cost of a life, the animal's life. Or it makes atonement in the place of a life, the sinner's life. With Jesus Christ being the one who ultimately will shed his blood and make that atonement for all of us. But every one of those sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. 
every day, morning and every night, evening, a sacrifice had to be made for the people's sin. And then on that Day of Atonement, it's just in case anything was missed, they wanted to be very sure Day of Atonement was set aside so it would make sure it covered everything. And on that day, it would just blot out. You'd start over. It was game, game zero right there. But it had to be done every year. Every year it had to be done over and over and over again. But we know that from the garden, God was planning on a sacrifice that was perfect and totally fulfilling. But there are other ways that the Old Testament points toward Jesus. When the Jews left Egypt and found themselves wandering out in the desert there for a generation, God gave them the plans for a portable worship center called the tabernacle. And there are three things that that tabernacle was supposed to accomplish. One of them was presence. It was the place where God's presence would reside among his people. You know, when they came out of Egypt, he resided on the mountain until they came to this tabernacle. And then he moved from that mountain into the tabernacle. And his presence was so massive, so powerful, that, that no man could enter into it without, without precautions. And it would only happen one time of year. So that presence was that he would put, allow, God would dwell among his people in that tabernacle. This is Exodus 25. And they would construct a sanctuary for me that I might dwell among them, he said. And so even though God was in the tabernacle among them, he was not with his people as he was in the garden. Remember, they're still separated by their sin. And so while he is there, he is still removed, and man can only enter in his presence that one time of year in a most certain way or he would die. So that tabernacle represented presence. The tabernacle also represented revelation. In Exodus 25, he says, Here I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which, you are about, which upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you, about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So in this tabernacle, there was this holy of holies, this place, this room that was the inter-sanctum of all of the tabernacle. And God says, from that place, I will instruct you. From that place, I will reveal my character to you. And you can come in there and I'll tell you about it. The third thing it did was atonement. It was in the tabernacle where the sacrifices were offered and made. And there were many, there were at least five different sacrifices that were made, but they, many of them happened, had to happen daily. And then later on, the temple would take the place of this tabernacle that Solomon would build, and it would be focused, it would be built there in Jerusalem. But the, see, the thing is, is that tabernacle, why it appears to just be this, this overly detailed this, this thing, like, it's like too many details. It's like it's the measurements for it. It's how high it is. It's how you're going to make it. It's the color of the fabric. It's the type of fabric. All these details. All these details. You're like going, what is the point? It's a tent. And you're going to be in it. We get it. And he goes, no, it's more than that. Because this tent and everything that happens in it points to my son who's coming at a future day and time. Because everything that happened in this tent or later on in that tabernacle, think about this, think about this. What was the thing that they finally pinned on Jesus 
that was con- he was convicted for. Three days later, I will tear down this temple and, re- and th- I will tear down this table, and in three days later, I will rebuild it. See, the tabernacle and the temple were never about the tabernacle and the temple. They were about Jesus. They were about God's presence among mankind. And so in the tabernacle with this, this tent that they had, or later on with, the, ta- with the, the temple, they both pointed toward Jesus. You know, it said, it said in the book of Leviticus describes as some as the priest's handbook. And, and this is because much of the material in it were the instructions for how the priests were supposed to lead and intercede God's people in their relationship with God. And a priest would intercede for the people of God in this way, but only the high priest would enter the most holy place, and only once a year, and he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. That's in Hebrews 9. In the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the great high priest in Hebrews 4. He is able to be our intercessor, and he allows us to enter in the presence of God. Next Friday, we're observing what is called Good Friday. But isn't that an odd name? Isn't it? Did you, I mean, you think about this. Isn't it strange that we would set aside a day to celebrate the death of the Son of God? And that we would call that Good Friday. Isn't there a better name for that? Shouldn't that be Black Friday? The, the day that is the darkest day where the Son of God in perfect, sinless nature was nailed to a cross and died for things he never did. And actually he died for the sins of other people. Doesn't that sound more like a Black Friday, a day of darkness? And yet they call it Good Friday Because in that day, not only did he die, but in his death, the goodness was made manifest to us. Because in that day, for instance, it was in his death on the cross that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent, going back to Genesis 3. It was in his death on the cross that Jesus was the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. What did John the Baptist say as he came down to the baptism? All these Jews are standing around. All these Jews know all about the Passover. And that's a big deal. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everyone turns around and it's Jesus. What did he just say to everyone listening? He just said to them, that one there, he is more than all we've experienced. Matter of fact, that one there, he is the fulfillment of all we've experienced. That one. And he pointed directly at Jesus in those words and said, that one fulfills everything in the Old Testament. So he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It was in his death on the cross that his blood was spilled to clean the sins of mankind. Not the blood of an animal, but the very blood of the Son of God. It was his death on the cross that fulfilled the purpose of the Day of Atonement. It was no longer goats that were slain or sent away. It was the Son of God Himself who fulfilled the Day of Atonement once and for all so it would never have to be observed again. 
It was his death on the cross that his presence was no longer hid behind a veil in the temple. Because John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the temple was there to, to, to protect man from God's presence. And he resided in that holy of holies. But when Christ died, right there and then, it is evident that he made, he made it available for man to be in, or when Christ was born, but also when he died, what happened to the veil in the temple that separated man from the glory of God? It was torn apart so that anyone could enter in. The veil was torn. It no longer separated man from the presence of God. And so here is, it says in John 1, Behold, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself and his son dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace. A moment ago, we talked about how it was in the Holy of Holies where God would reveal himself and give his laws and his mandates to mankind. But it was in, in, in his death on the cross that he revealed himself to all mankind. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Then my favorite passage, I just thought about this one. My favorite passage is out of John. I think it's two, somewhere in there. Oh, right here. And it says says that... um, John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of him. And then it says, but Jesus has explained him. Is that not a crazy verse? No man has seen God, but Jesus explains him. No longer does man, does one man go behind a veil and take instruction from God, and come back out and tell people about it. Now, all mankind has the opportunity and the privilege to enter into the presence of God themselves and interact with Him for themselves. There is no need for a priest to stand between you and God. There is no need for anyone to stand between you and God. He has made Himself available to you one-on-one, that he can speak to you through his word, through his spirit, directly to you. It was in his death on the cross that he made atonement that was once and for all. Romans 3 speaks about God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Every priest that stands daily at this, at um, what he, he did with it, In that passage, he just said that before it was animal's blood that was shed for mankind, but now one one man has shed his blood for all mankind. In Hebrews 10, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. So you get this? The author of Hebrews is now speaking about what was the Old Testament system. And he says, every day, these priests would stand, and they would make these same sacrifices over and over again, and they could never really take away sin. 
But in verse 12, he says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see? He says, all the other sacrifices were only symbolic. All the other sacrifices were just pointing toward another sacrifice. None of those sacrifices were sufficient in and of themselves. He, Jesus, was the only real sacrifice. It was his blood that on that horrible day resulted in the goodness for you and I. It was his blood spilled on that Friday that makes us, so we call it, Good Friday. Because it was in his spilled blood that all of his goodness was made manifest to us. His blood, only his blood could do that. None other could. It doesn't matter how many bulls, rams, sheep, goat you would sacrifice. None of their blood could ever be enough to match the perfect, sinless blood of Jesus. That's why in Hebrews 10 it says that the old system of Jewish laws only gave a dim foretaste of the good things Christ would do for us. The sacrifices under the old system were repeated again and again, year after year, but even so they could never save those who lived under the rules. Hebrews 10 verse 2, if they could have, one offering would have been enough. The worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and their feeling of guilt would be gone. Verse 3, but just the opposite happened. Those yearly sacrifices reminded them of their disobedience and guilt instead of relieving their minds. And for for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats really to take away sin. The blood of every animal slain was only a substitute until Jesus came and bled and died on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what that verse is saying? For our sake, Jesus became the scapegoat. For our sake, Jesus became the goat that was slain. For our sake, Jesus became the Lamb of God. And so here we sit in Egypt, huddled in our home, waiting for this prophecy, waiting for this last plague to take place. It says that the angel of death will come and take the oldest son of every family. And so in that case, every family waited, waited, wondering if their oldest son would be taken that night. But by faith, God says, take the blood of a spotless lamb, Put that blood over your doorpost. It will protect you from death. And then in an an absolute perfect fulfillment of that symbolic act, years, generations, centuries later, a sinless lamb sheds his blood. And all who say that that blood is my protection, all who say that that blood on that cross is what I take as my payment for my sin, they are protected like those ancient Israelites were. And death passes over. And they will never experience separation from God because they've taken the blood of a spotless lamb as their payment for sin. 
Every sacrifice in the Old Testament is fulfilled and perfectly demonstrated in the blood and the death of Christ on the cross on that fateful day. The temple, the tabernacle, all of that were symbolic, pointing to one day Jesus. Good Friday is good because Jesus obeyed his father and willingly laid down his life so that all of the Old Testament would be true and so that you and I could enter into a relationship with Christ, with God, that would never be possible before that. Never be possible before that. This morning, we stand a week away from observing Good Friday, looking to it with this mixed emotion, with this mixed sense of like in this day, the most horrible happened, but in this day, the most glorious took place. That's why you hear people talk about the glory and the beauty of the cross, That's why they call the blackest day Good Friday. Because in Christ, in that event, in that placing himself on the cross, God's glory is manifest. And all of his glory is opened up to every single one of us. And every single one of us have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with Christ. Every single one of us have the opportunity to to have our sins covered not by the skin of an animal, not by the blood of a bull, but by the blood of the sinless Son of God who died and gave himself up so that we would not have to ourselves. This morning, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never believed that his death counts for your forgiveness of sins, this morning, I would encourage you to do so. There is nothing you have to do. There's not any special words you have to say. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You simply have to stop believing that you can save yourself. Or you have to stop believing that something you do will save you. You have to start believing that God came to this earth to die for your sins. And when you start believing that, you, start, you become a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. Your sins are forgiven. You will begin to understand what it means to experience a relief from shame and from guilt. And you'll begin to experience peace in its place. But if you choose to continue to save yourself, you choose to continue to be frustrated, and ultimately, sadly but true, one day when you take your last breath, you'll wake up on the other side eternally, and completely separated from God for all time. That is the result of sin. But Christ died, so you don't have to experience that. In your own way, you can just simply express that to God and tell him that you don't really want to have that experience, that you really do believe that he died for you. It's that simple. Don't stumble over the simplicity of it because you'd be stumbling over the wisdom of God. Don't ask it to make sense. Accept it as truth. Believe it by faith. 
and step into it. Let me pray for us. Father, your wisdom is far greater than anything that we can begin to understand. And yet you are truly wise. You are truly amazing in the sense that you, from the beginning of time, had a plan and that you were working it out and that you chose to include mankind in that plan. And we are so grateful that Jesus stepped into that plan willingly, giving up his life on the behalf of us. And that he did fulfill all those sacrifices, that he did fulfill the temple, that he did fulfill the tabernacle, and that he does fulfill the penalty that I owe for my sin. Today, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never placed their faith in you, that has never believed that your payment for for our sins was sufficient, that they would do that today. In their own words, in their own way, that they would simply believe. Father, prepare our hearts this week as we, day by day, take steps closer to coming together on Friday night and observing the glory of Good Friday and then the glory of the resurrection. Help us to prepare our hearts this week to truly worship you and to truly experience the glory ourselves. And in your name we pray.